Section 41 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 64 The Eastern Question Again, Part 2. Another little sensation was created by the invention of a new title for the Queen. At the beginning of the session of 1876, the royal speech announced that an addition was to be made to the sovereign's titles, and after several attempts on the part of the opposition to get at the nature of the change, Mr. Disraeli at last announced, in a somewhat hesitating way, that the Queen was to be called the Empress of India. A strong dislike was felt to this superfluous and tawdry addition to the ancient style of the sovereigns of England. The title of Emperor had been a good deal tarnished of late. The Emperor of the French had but recently fallen in the dust. There had been an Emperor of Mexico and an Emperor of Haiti. The title of the German Emperor was in one sense only a restoration of a dignity which had been historical and in any case the restoration was not especially popular in England. But to convert the immemorial crown of the English sovereign into a brand-new glittering imperial diadem seemed to most persons simply an act of vulgarity. The educated feeling of the country rose in revolt against this preposterous innovation. Some of the debates in the House of Commons were full of fire and spirit, and recalled the memory of more stirring times when the Liberal Party was in heart and strength. Mr. Lowe spoke against the new title with a vivacity and a bitterness of sarcasm that reminded listeners of his famous opposition to the Reform Bill of 1866. Mr. Joseph Cohen, member for Newcastle, who had been in the House for some sessions without making any mark, suddenly broke into the debates with a speech which at once won him the name of an orator, and which a leading member of the government, Mr. Gathorn Hardy, described as having electrified the House. Mr. Disraeli chaffed the opposition rather than reasoned with it. He pointed out, as one justification of the title, the fact that Spencer had dedicated his fairy queen to the most high, mighty, and magnificent Empress Elizabeth. Spencer, of course, only used the word after the fantastic ways of court flattery in his time, and because he thought Empress sounded well. Milton Satan twice addresses Eve as Empress. Mr. Disraeli also cited, in evidence, a letter from a young lady at school who had directed his attention to the fact that in Whitaker's Almanac the Queen was already described as Empress of India. This style of argument did not add much to the dignity of the debate. Mr. Lowe spoke with justifiable anger and contempt of the Prime Minister's introducing the lispings of the nursery into a grave discussion, and asked whether Mr. Disraeli wished to make the House in general think as meanly of the subject as he did himself. The government, of course, carried their point. They deferred so far to public feeling as to put into the Act a provision against the use of the imperial title in the United Kingdom. There was, indeed, a desire that its use should be prohibited everywhere except in India. And most of the members of the opposition were at first under the impression that the government had undertaken to do so much. But the only restriction introduced into the Act 
had reference to the employment of the additional title in these islands. The unlucky subject was the occasion of a new and somewhat unseemly dispute afterwards. In a speech which he delivered to a public meeting at East Retford, Mr. Lowe made an unfortunate statement to the effect that the Queen had endeavoured to induce two former ministers to confer upon her this new title and had not succeeded. It was a very rash act on the part of a responsible public man to make such a statement without positive certainty as to its truth. Perhaps it would not have been a very wise or proper proceeding on the part of such a man to make the statement, even if it were true. Mr. Lowe proved to be absolutely wrong in his assertion. No attempt of the kind had ever been made by the Queen. Mr. Disraeli found his enemy delivered into his hands. The question was incidentally and indirectly brought up in the House of Commons on May 2, 1876, and Mr. Disraeli seized the opportunity. He denounced Mr. Lowe, thundered at him from across the table, piled up a heap of negative evidence to show that his assertion could not be true, and at the very close of his speech came down on the hapless offender with the crushing announcement that he had the authority of the Queen herself to contradict the statement. Nothing could have been in worse taste than Mr. Disraeli's way of making this very necessary contradiction. It is evident that the right course would have been to put into the fewest and simplest words the announcement which Her Majesty had very properly authorized the minister to make. The dignity of the sovereign required that her name and her word should not be introduced to the House by a somewhat coarse rhetorical artifice at the end of a speech, and that they should not be preluded by impassioned sentences of boisterous and furious denunciation. Mr. Lowe sat like one crushed, while Mr. Disraeli roared at him and banged the table at him. He said nothing that night, but on the following Thursday evening he made an apology, which assuredly did not want completeness or humility. The title, which was the occasion for so much debate, has not come into greater popular favour since that time. It is used in India, and we occasionally see evidences of an inclination to bring it quietly into use elsewhere, but there was a very general concurrence of opinion among educated persons in all parts of the country as to the impropriety of the measure adopted by the government and the vulgarizing effect of the new addition to the royal title. It was all part of an imperializing policy, some men said, part of a deliberate scheme to make the institutions of the country less liberal and popular. It is part, another man said, of a tawdry love of finery and frippery in language and policy. It savors of the taste which associated the banner of St. George with the mountains of Rasselas. Mr. Disraeli, however, had a large majority in both Houses of Parliament, and he carried his proposal by about the same preponderance of votes in the Commons as in the Lords. Then the country soon forgot all about the matter. More serious questions were coming up to engage the attention of the public. When Mr. Disraeli was pressed during the debates on the royal title to give some really serious reason for the change, it was observed as significant that he made reference more or less vague to the necessity of asserting the position of the Sovereign of England 
as supreme ruler over the whole empire of india the prime minister spoke in the tone of one who feels more than he desires to express of one who gives a warning which he wishes to be understood without need of fuller explanation every one knew what mr disraeli meant he had undoubtedly let drop words which were calculated to produce a deep effect on the public mind they decided the wavering opinions of many people there were men who sincerely disliked the idea of the fire new title of empress and who yet felt that after what the prime minister had said it would not be prudent to oppose the act of the government mr disraeli had purposely touched a chord which was sure to vibrate all over the country the necessity to which he alluded was the necessity of setting up the flag of england on the citadel of england's asiatic empire as a warning to the one enemy whom the english people believed they had reason to dread mr disraeli had raised what has been called the russian spectre no influence during our time has been so potent to direct the foreign and even the domestic policy to disturb the relations of parties and to rouse the passions of the people as that which is exercised by the dread and distrust of russian ambition a great crisis was now again at hand it has been already mentioned that lord aberdeen was of opinion at the close of the crimean war that that war might secure the peace of europe for twenty-five years his opinion was then thought to be hardly doing justice to the efficacy of the measures taken to sustain turkey and to restrain the ambition of russia lord aberdeen however had overrated instead of underrating the endurance of the peace that was made by the treaty of paris only twenty-two years had passed when turkey and russia were at war again during all the interval turkey had been occupied in throwing away every opportunity for her political and social reorganization the influence of the statesmanship of constantinople had been growing more and more baneful to all the populations under the control of the sultan there had been insurrections in crete in the herzegovina in other parts of the provinces misgoverned by turkey and they had been put down whenever the port was strong enough with a barbarous severity men on both sides of english politics were now losing all hope of turkey's regeneration two plain facts were present to the consciousness of europe turkey was sinking day by day russia was returning to the position she occupied before the crimean war was russia also returning to the ambition which she undoubtedly cherished before that time she had lately been making rapid advances into central asia post after post which were once believed to be secure from her approach were dropping into her hands her goal of one day became her starting point of the next early in july eighteen seventy five lord derby received an account of disturbances in the herzegovina and something like an organized insurrection in bosnia the provinces inhabited by men of alien race and religion over which turkey rules have always been the source of her weakness they have always in one form or another invited foreign intervention where the intervention was necessary and just they had been its vindication where it was selfish and unnecessary they had given it its excuse the revolt which ended in the independence of greece began in the danubian provinces 
the Crimean War had its origin in the same region. The disturbances of Herzegovina in 1862 and Crete in 1867 had each in its turn almost provoked the intervention of Western Europe. This time it became quite clear in a moment to almost every eye that a crisis had arrived and that a new chapter of the Eastern question was to be opened. It is not less Turkey's misfortune than her fault, certainly not less her fault than her misfortune, that her way of governing her foreign provinces has been the cause of so much trouble to Western Europe. Fate has given to the most incapable and worthless government in the world a task which would strain the resources of the loftiest public spirit and the most accomplished statesmanship. Turkey has to rule over a great variety of nationalities and of creeds, all more or less jumbled together within a comparatively limited area. These different sects and races agree in hardly anything but in their common detestation of Ottoman rule. Amongst themselves their rivalries are unceasing and bitter. Again and again Turkey has made it her plausible excuse for maintaining a system of stern repression in the southeast of Europe, that if she lifted a strong hand from these populations, they would be found carrying on something like an internecine struggle amongst themselves. The Slav dreads and detests the Greek. The Greek despises the Slav. The Albanian objects alike to Slav and to Greek. The Mohammedan Albanian detests the Catholic Albanian. The Slavs are drawn toward Russia by affinity of race and of religion. But this very fact, which makes in one sense their political strength, brings with it a certain condition of weakness, because by making them more formidable to Greeks and to Germans, it increases the dislike of their growing power and the determination to oppose it. It would indeed take a very wise, far-seeing, and flexible system of administration to enable a central government to rule with satisfaction and with success all these differing and contending races. The Turkish government managed the matter worse than it might seem possible for a government to do, which had been brought for centuries within the action of European civilization. Turkish rule seems to exist only in one of two extremes. In certain places it means entire relaxation of authority. In others it means the most rude and rigorous oppression. The hand of the statesman at Constantinople is absolutely unfelt in some of the remoter provinces supposed to be under Turkish sway. The warlike inhabitants of some highland region live their wild and lawless lives, levying blackmail on travellers, and preying on the peaceable commerce of their neighbours with as much indifference to the officials of Stambul as to the remonstrances of Western statesmanship. But it may be that not far from their frontier line there is some hapless province whose people feel the hand of Turkey strong and cruel on their necks at every moment of their lives. It happens, as is not unnatural in such a system, that the repression is heaviest where it is least needed, and that in the only cases where severity and rigor might be excused, there is an entire relaxation of all central authority. In the condition of things thus hastily sketched out, it is natural that there should be constant upheavings of political and social rebellion. To the Slav population, 
the neighbourhood of Russia has all the disturbing effect which the propinquity of a magnet might have on the works of some delicate piece of mechanism, or which the neighbourhood of one great planet has on the movements of another. The settlement made by the Crimean War had since that time been gradually breaking down. Servia was an independent state in all but the name. The Danubian provinces, which were to have been governed by separate rulers, came to unite themselves, first under one ruler, and then into one complete system, and at last emerged into the sovereign state of Romania, under the Prussian prince Charles of Hohenzollern. Thus the result which most of the European powers at the time of the Congress of Paris endeavoured to prevent was successfully accomplished in spite of their inclinations. The efforts to keep Bosnia and Herzegovina in quiet subjection to the Sultan proved a miserable failure. The insurrection which now broke out in Herzegovina spread with rapidity. The Turkish statesmen insisted that it was receiving help not only from Russia, but from the subjects of Austria, as well as from Servia and Montenegro. An appeal was made to the English government to use its influence with Austria in order to prevent the insurgents from receiving any assistance from across the Austrian frontier. Servia and Montenegro were appealed to in a similar manner. Lord Derby seems to have acted with indecision and feebleness. He does not appear to have appreciated the immediate greatness of the crisis, and he offended popular feeling and even the public conscience by urging on the port that the best they could do was to put down the insurrection as quickly as possible and not allow it to swell to the magnitude of a question of European interest. Lord Derby knew the anxiety existing among many of the European powers to interfere on behalf of the Christian populations of Turkey, and it almost seemed as if he dreaded the sort of public scandal this must occasion more than the possibility of Turkey using her repressive powers with an excess of rigor. End of section 41